This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In today's episode, we travel across the pond to look at the very interesting Serco Graphics Deferred Prosecution Agreement entered into by the company with a serious fraud office in the United Kingdom. I'm joined by Sacha Harbour Kelly MBE, a partner at Gibson Dunn in London, together with Steve Melrose, Senior Associate, to take a deep dive into this DPA. I think it will be most interesting for the compliance practitioner, particularly those with UK operations as it really lays out where the SFO may be going in terms of its uh, deferred prosecution agreements, really lays out the legal requirements and all other indicia. I'm looking forward to bringing it to you. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode. And today we are going to Uh, go outside the confines of the continental United States to have a podcast on a recent deferred prosecution agreement, which came out of the UK and involved the Serious Fraud Office and Serco Geographics Limited. I have today with me Sacha Harbour Kelly. He's a partner at Gibson Dunn. Also, Steve Melrose, a senior associate. They wrote, frankly, what I think is one of the best client alerts on this uh, issue. And so, I asked them if they would be willing to come on to the podcast to help uh, visit with us on this. So, gentlemen, first of all, with that incredibly long-winded introduction, welcome (laughs) and thank you both for uh, taking the time to visit with me. Thank you, Tom, for inviting us. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Tom. So, could uh, maybe we just start with a little bit of background on on both of you all and the Gibson Dunn practice in this area. In the United States, we would call it a a white-collar practice, um, white-collar defense. but could you just tell us a little bit about uh, your practice and why you were interested in this uh, deferred prosecution agreement? Absolutely, Tom. Um, so I, as you introduced me, I'm a partner in the white collar and disputes practice of Gibson Dunn in our London office. Um, although I'm part of the global white collar investigations uh, practice. So we uh, help uh, companies under investigation by authorities, whether in the United Kingdom or in uh, concert with our colleagues in other jurisdictions when facing investigations by authorities such as the DOJ and the SEC. We help a whole range of uh, clients from uh, industrial background, financial services, tech, um, bio-life science companies. Um, So the full range of corporates facing regulatory and criminal investigations. Um, And uh, as I say, we work part of a, a very broad international practice. And, and Steve is uh, uh, an associate in that practice in London. So let's now turn to the deferred prosecution agreement itself. Um, this is the fifth DPA, so there's been a relatively uh, few number of them. And I, maybe I could just start with, uh, could you all, uh, you give us what you think is the significance of this DPA? And does it provide us really with any information that wasn't available in prior DPAs? Um, maybe I can take that one, Tom. I mean, you're, you're quite right. This, this DPA, uh, it is the fifth uh, ever DPA concluded in the UK since the regime 
was established in 2014. Uh, it's also significant because it's the uh, only DPA uh, we've had in the last uh, two years since the Tesco DPA uh, was announced uh, in April 2017. Uh, it's also significant in that it's the first DPA that's been approved uh, by a judge other than uh, Sir Brian Leveson, who was the judge uh, who presided over the hearings regarding the four prior uh, DPAs. Um, I think it's fair to say, given how few DPAs we have here, that the um, significance uh, of each DPA is perhaps magnified in that each will uh, be unique, novel, uh, new in some way, uh, and each will be uh, subject to real scrutiny by practitioners uh, like Sasha and myself uh, who will pour over them um, to see what it is that we can, we can take from them. So I was wondering if you might be able to walk us through the court's analysis. Sure. Uh, and, and Tom, just to give some background to how the DPA process works in the United Kingdom as opposed to the United States, is that a DPA cannot be concluded in the United Kingdom without a judge approving it. Um, and as part of that approval process, uh, there is a private court hearing um, in which the judge looks at whether or not um, entering into a deferred prosecution agreement would be in the interest of justice, and if it would, whether or not the terms are, are fair, reasonable, and proportionate. And if in that private hearing he comes to a conclusion that the uh, DPA is likely to be in the interest of justice and the proposed terms are fair, reasonable, and proportionate, uh, the process then moves to a public hearing uh, in which um, a formal approval of the, the DPA and its terms uh, is granted and a judgment is published where the judge is required to set out what his or her reasons were for finding that it was in the interest of justice and the terms being fair, reasonable and proportionate. So in this case, um, looking at the, the first statutory test and what uh, were the, the factors in this case which made it in the interest of justice, I think the first thing to uh, observe is the court recognised as a starting point that the conduct was, was serious. Uh, the victim was a central government department um, and the judge found uh, from the facts put before him uh, in the private hearing, that the, the conduct alleged demonstrated what he described as ingrained uh, conduct uh, by, uh, by the company. Nonetheless, the judge found that there were uh, significant countervailing factors, which meant that uh, those could be taken into account um, and balance uh, the normal position that where uh, there is a serious allegation and evidence supported, uh, a company should be prosecuted. And in particular, the judge recognised that in this case, the company uh, proposed to be subject to the DPA had promptly self-reported the misconduct, had cooperated throughout the investigation with the serious fraud office, was a company that hadn't previously uh, had any uh, criminal past misconduct. The conduct itself was now aged, going back uh, to 2011 to 2013. Uh, the company had made remediation in, in two ways. Firstly, 
it had compensated the loser, in this case, uh, as I said, the Ministry of Justice, um, and it also uh, implemented significant remediation processes to its compliance and procedure. And those factors were were seen as sufficiently countervailing uh, to displace uh, the presumption of a prosecution and, and turn uh, the position to uh, one where the public interest was served or the interests of justice were served by not prosecuting the company, but entering into a deferred prosecution agreement. And then the um, terms of the agreement, uh, uh, as you articulated, Sacha, there's a two-part analysis. And then right. so the court has to look at terms. Are they fair and reasonable? That's right. Perhaps just before we um, get to our um, uh, our analysis of the, the terms, I think that we could perhaps look at in a little bit more uh, detail, if we may, Tom, on, on some of the um, detail of the uh, positive aspects that the company was able to demonstrate. So, for example, um, as part of the cooperation, one of the uh, requests which the company acceded to by the SFO was not to conduct employee interviews as part of the internal investigation. And that is a request which is an unusual one, although it's one which has occurred in a prior deferred prosecution agreement with Tesco Stores Limited, which was in fact the the, the, the last or the fourth um, uh, DPA concluded in April of 2017. Um, and the significance of that request from an SFO perspective is it permitted the SFO to secure the first account um, from those who were suspected of misconduct um, or alternatively may have been significant witnesses. And the SFO certainly in many of its uh, public pronouncements, particularly through speeches, emphasizes that desire to secure first accounts. So on this occasion, the, the, the company agreed um, not to interview uh, its employees, but to focus upon a documentary review of uh, the, the evidence um, and uh, allow the SFO to go ahead and, and, and interview the, the witnesses and, uh, and suspects in this case. Now, although, as I said, it's happened before in a previous DPA, I'm not necessarily um, in, in a position to suggest that this is a is a trend. We certainly know of cases which have commenced uh, subsequent to the Serco uh, investigation where companies have been um, not requested to defer from interviewing their employees. Um, and certainly the SFO will recognize that in many cases where misconduct or potential misconduct comes to the company's attention, that it will, a company will need to interview people before deciding whether or not to bring something through the doors of the SFO. Um, so they specifically recognize that in many cases, that will be the conventional position. So this shouldn't be seen as a case which suggests to receive uh, a DPA, you may not interview your employees. What it suggests, however, is that where a matter is before the SFO and the SFO asks you to defer uh, interviewing employees, that you will get credit for, for doing so. And that is perhaps similar to the DOJ's position in its uh, its. Uh, 
declinations with disgorgement. Uh, one of the aspects that that policy speaks of is deconfliction uh, and the authority in, in the U.S. Uh, requesting, certainly on a limited time basis, um, uh, the, the, the opportunity to interview people before the company does. I think that's the, the, the key here as well, that in fact, in any case in the UK, the SFO would be open um, and would be expected um, to limit the time that it requests uh, a, a deferral of interviews by a company taking place. In the future, I, I think such a request will be limited to cases much like this, much like the Tesco Stores Limited case, where there was a relatively few number of subjects who the SFO wanted to interview. They were all domestic, and also the investigation was purely domestic. I don't expect this request to be made in cases where there are numerous um, subjects to be interviewed, where other authorities are involved, uh, and, and where the interview subjects are dispersed across the globe. So I don't see this as a trend, but I see it as something that if you have a, a case with the kind of facts we're discussing here, you may be uh, requested um, to, be, to, to observe that request uh, by the SFO to demonstrate your cooperation. Sacha, do you see uh, within the court's judgment uh, any type of uh, weighing or giving any one of these factors more weight? Or are they uh, relatively equal, at least in the court's judgment in, in the Circo matter? I think in the, in the Circo matter, I think it's really when you come to the conclusion in paragraph 47, where um, really the, the judge gives the broadest terms, in the broadest terms, what for him was determinative. Um, and for him, the, sort of the broad heading of what, was the, of what was determinative was a demonstration by the company of its integrity or its newly uh, acquired integrity after the misconduct. And he says the best way in which that integrity is demonstrated will involve self-reporting, full cooperation, willing to learn lessons, um, and the acceptance of an appropriate penalty. For me, the most interesting factor there um, is that he describes self-reporting as a requirement. Historically, uh, certainly when DPAs um, were introduced, um, the government statements back in sort of 2013 spoke more about companies cooperating um, and accepting liability when conduct was discovered, um, whether that be um, by an authority or whether or not it was by the company itself that self-reported. Um, we see, I think, over, uh, over the years since the government introduced the legislation, an increasing elevation in the, port, in the, in the importance of self-reporting. Uh, certainly in the, in the time that I was at the SFO and when the DPA Code of Practice was published, self-reporting was a factor, an important factor, but nonetheless one of a number of factors which were taken into account. I think this, this judgment has perhaps elevated um, the importance of uh, self-reporting to a to a new level. Well, since you've gone to paragraph 47, that brings up a point um, I wanted to address with you, or at least ask you about, uh, and that's the first two lines of paragraph 47, and, and I feel like I should probably quote those, and they read, there may be cynicism in some quarters about the process by which a corporate entity can take advantage of a DPA. This cynicism is not well-founded. 
And frankly, when I read those two lines, I thought the court was uh, addressing concerns raised about the SFO. But after listening to you, Sacha, it would seem that the court may have been, at least there's, it's open to another interpretation, that the court was concerned about people uh, being cynical about companies who received a DPA. Uh, do you read that uh, as well? I, I think it's the latter, how you've just explained it. So I, I think historically there has been a cynicism in the United Kingdom that uh, not prosecuting uh, entities, not prosecuting organizations, in particular companies, um, because it's not a process available to individuals, um, is seen as some as as a as a, a, a cozy arrangement that prosecutors and companies can uh, come together and agree, uh, uh, avoiding ultimately prosecution for what is criminal conduct. Uh, so I think that is where the the cynicism comes from. Um, but in in, in reality, uh, DPAs recognise, and the whole reason for DPAs. Um, is to, in fact, as this judgment says in the, in, in the, in, in the same paragraph, um, are available to companies who demonstrate that they have remediated uh, their past misconduct and have demonstrated that through the, the positive steps as, as enumerated by the judge here of self-reporting and cooperation um, and uh, the acceptance that they will pay an appropriate penalty and, and learn from their lessons. And I think if we look at the terms of deferred prosecution agreements, certainly within the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom, the terms of a DPA are usually more onerous than would be capable of imposing upon a company if it were convicted. If convicted, the only penalty available to uh, a court is a financial one. Now, that may be a, a larger one than would be available or would, is offered on a DPA, but terms such as corporate remediation and uh, the imposition of compliance monitors are not terms, which certainly under the present arrangements in the UK, are, are not sentences that a court can impose. Uh, so uh, I, I agree with the, the judge that uh, um, any uh, cynicism in DPAs is, is unfounded. So perhaps could we now turn to the terms and how sure. the court analyzed whether or not the uh, terms of the deferred, proposed deferred prosecution agreement were fair, reasonable, and proportionate? Yeah, sure. I mean, as we <coughs> said previously, that the, the, the question of the applicable penalty uh, was addressed uh, by Mr. Justice William Davis in a relatively uh, conventional way. Um, consistent with, with his opening observations regarding seriousness, um, culpability was assessed as, as high level, uh, which is the first uh, stage uh, in the uh, process that the judges follow in determining uh, penalty pursuant to the relevant sentencing guidelines. Um, in this case, uh, the harm was readily identifiable as, as loss in the form of the revenue uh, abatement not given to the Ministry of Justice. Um, and here we saw the judge discount the penalty by, by 50% to reflect uh, the cooperation that, that Sasha mentioned earlier, uh, which resulted uh, in a saving uh, in the time as compared with the cooperation, uh, sorry, prosecution, uh, and to encourage a future self-reporting. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there was a significant 
uh, amount of time that passed between uh, the conduct coming to light in 2013 and the conclusion of the DPA. I suppose one may look at it in the sense that a prosecution may have taken another, you know, one or two years. So in that sense, there, there, there was some saving to be had. And that was what was what was recognized in the penalty. I was just going to follow up uh, on uh, compliance remediation and potentially reporting future misconduct. Yeah, absolutely. And um, Tom, I think there is some interesting novelty to uh, those two conditions. Firstly, as, as, as far as reporting future misconduct is concerned, this is the first time that there's been a term of that nature uh, in a deferred prosecution agreement. On the other side, um, of the Atlantic in the US. It's a, now a, a common term for companies to have that obligation to report future misconduct, but that is that is new here, so it is worthy of observing. Um, and I certainly think that that will now be a typical uh, term of any future uh, DPA in this, in this jurisdiction. Um, the other uh, requirement on the company was ongoing compliance remediation. Uh, the on ongoing compliance remediation is interesting, uh, uh, and it's interesting in that it requires the company to continue its remediation uh, efforts with respect to each and every one of its compliance programs. Now, that is very, very broad. Historically, in the DPAs which have been agreed prior to this, it was restricted to those compliance programs which had allegedly failed. So if it was a bribery and corruption case, then the remediation focused upon the bribery and corruption processes and procedures. Here, it's all of them, and it notes within the judgment um, various different processes and procedures, including um, the, 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 the anti-bribery and corruption processes, which of course had no application to the misconduct in this case. But the company has agreed as part of this uh, deferred prosecution agreement to look at all of its processes and procedures. So that's, that, that's novel um, and query whether or not that will become a typical term in the future. Certainly for me, um, Faced with this situation representing a, uh, representing a client, um, I think one of the discussions I'd be wanting to have with the SFO is, in fact, whether or not that is fair, reasonable and proportionate. If, in fact, the, the, the failure had happened in one part of the company's processes and procedures, that, in fact, um, any term should address that failure to be um, fair, reasonable and proportionate. But nonetheless, it was approved, albeit with the consent of the, the, the party in this case. Um, but it's certainly something which I think few in the future companies uh, need to be aware of, certainly a, a request by the SFO to go broader, and there may need to be some advocacy uh, with uh, the, the SFO about the appropriateness um, of that breadth. Interestingly, also, um, both the uh, requirement to report future misconduct and also the compliance remediation is group-wide. It's not focused upon uh, simply the target of this deferred prosecution agreement, the subsidiary Circo Geographics Limited. It's an obligation assumed by the parent company, the Circo Group um, PLC. So that's that's novel. Um, it's at first, I thought that might have been something which was purely fact-specific, fact-specific in the sense that we know from the judgment that Circo Geographics, the target of the DPA, the, the respondent to the DPA, is now a dormant company, and the judge makes the point that you know any terms affecting directly it would have 
of would be of no significance. Uh, it's not there to to implement uh, processes and procedures or report anything because of its dormant status. Um, so. On the face of it, it would seem that it was because of the factual scenario in this case of that of that dormancy. But in fact, what the what the judge says um, in paragraph I think, 42 of the judgment um, is that um, uh, this requirement that these obligations be assumed by uh, the the parent company, Circo Group PLC, he describes it as an inf- important development in the use of DPAs, which suggests here we have a judge who sees potentially in the future, um, terms which require group-wide reporting and compliance improvements as being, within his view, fair, reasonable, uh, proportionate. So that's, that's, uh, I think, a significant potential change to take into account in future uh, DPA discussions in the United Kingdom. And Sanchi, I thought that point uh, that you very well articulated in the client alert really was one of the most uh, significant ones in it's going to be interesting to see if for future DPAs follow that, but also how that impacts a uh, company's decision uh, going forward. The uh, The next area I wanted to turn to was, in, as referenced, I believe, in paragraph 43, uh, uh, was the uh, postponement of the statement of facts. And that's typically not something we see here in the United States. So I was wondering if you might give a few words on what that process is and why it's invoked here or what it may mean going forward. Yeah, sure. And, and maybe I'll take that one, Tom. Um, I mean, it is clear here that the um, application for a DPA must include uh, a statement of facts. Uh, I'd say uh, it's standard uh, to publish at the uh, same time as the announcement of the DPA. Uh, it certainly was in the case of the first three uh, DPAs that we had here. Um, the statement of facts was postponed uh, in uh, publication. It was postponed uh, in the case of the Tesco DPA uh, and has been postponed here uh, as well for reasons that, that Sasha might want to go into. Um, what, it, what it means is that the statement of facts will have to be published at some point in the future. Uh, and it's likely that that will either be where uh, individuals uh, are tried uh, and subsequently uh, their sentences are announced or, or they're acquitted, uh, or in circumstances where the SFO takes a uh, decision not to charge. Um, I think our preference uh, and what it would have been more helpful to see is perhaps uh, an anonymized statement of facts, uh, which would give um, some information uh, to members of the public and to practitioners uh, so that they have some sense uh, of what's gone on and what it was uh, that led uh, to the SFO to offer the DPA to, to Circo. Yes, and and, and you know, sort of going to to Steve's point, um, what what occurred here is the the judge, um, because no decisions had been made to charge individuals, thought that the publication of a statement of facts now uh, may be prejudicial to individuals who had yet to have a charging decision made against them, um, and if they were charged, it may prejudice their future trial rights. So that was the consideration that the judge gave and the, the reason for him um, not requiring uh, the statement of facts to be published contemporary with the announcement of the DPA. But it does bring into play some interesting potential anomalies, as Steve correctly identifies in the Tesco Stores Limited case. 
uh, the statement of facts was not published until after the trial of the individuals. And the irony in that case is the individuals were all had the charges discharged against them. So on the day that they were discharged, a statement of facts was published um, in which they were named as the main protagonists in the conduct for which the uh, company had accepted a deferred prosecution agreement. So in, in my view, I agree with Steve. I think it is cleaner to publish a statement of facts at the time that a DPA is made, that it be uh, published in a way which uh, anonymizes individuals uh, and to the extent um, that individuals are then later charged and tried. Uh, there is ample uh, power within the trial process for the court to direct the jury that they focus their attention upon the evidence they hear before the court uh, and not what they may find on, on the internet. Um, and that certainly avoids uh, what could happen again in this case where individuals have not been charged. Uh, we have a situation that in six months' time um, when the SFO have said they will make a decision regarding those individuals, they may take the decision that, in fact, the evidential standard against the individuals has not been met. Uh, and then at the same time, a statement of facts be published in which those individuals are named as the main protagonists in the conduct. Um, so it, it, it leads to that really strange anomaly. And I think it's best dealt with head on by publishing contemporaneously with the DPA uh, and doing so uh, anonymously. Um, and directing juries in future trials to disregard anything that they don't hear before uh, them in evidence in, in the trial. Uh, gentlemen, the um, information that's in this uh, deferred prosecution agreement uh, seems to me to, if not widen um, obligations or opportunities around DPAs. It, it provides a company who finds themselves under investigation with a real roadmap of things that they can do proactively during the course of an investigation to hopefully help drive down a potential fine and penalty and perhaps even garner a deferred prosecution agreement. And um, you talked about self-reporting, accepting responsibility, remediating, um, accepting the obligation of uh, reporting future misconduct and uh, literally having an entity-wide uh, enhancement or upgrade of your compliance program, not simply the uh, corporation or area of your controls that may have failed. Would, uh, would you find that to be a fair assessment or would you perhaps take things in a different direction? No, I, I agree, Tom. Those are certainly the key features, um, which you know, I think uh, – um, uh, come out in the judgment. One other thing which comes out earlier in the judgment um, is also a recognition, and I think this has been significant in all of the deferred prosecution agreements as well, is that the company essentially is a, a, a different entity to the one at the time of the deferred prosecution agreement than it was at the time um, of the misconduct. In particular, um, not just looking at its processes and procedures, but looking at how the individuals who attribute the liability to the company have been dealt with. Um, and it was recognised in this DPA, as it has in historic ones, that those whose misconduct is attributed are no longer with the company um, or, where appropriate, and their, their conduct wasn't so severe, um, have been uh, dealt with by disciplinary processes. Uh, so I think it would be certainly difficult for any company to be able to um, persuade 
the serious fraud office, the DPA, would be appropriate and a court would be appropriate if the wrongdoers um, had not been appropriately dealt with according to the level of their, their misconduct. So that's another important I think, characteristic to, to take into account. Well, gentlemen, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time, but I've been visiting today with Sacha Harbour-Kelly, partner at Gibson & Dunn, and Steve Melrose, a senior associate on the Serco Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Gentlemen, I was wondering if uh, if any of our listeners wanted to follow up with you all uh, with direct questions or for, ask for dis- additional information, could they do so? And if so, how would they do it? Absolutely. Uh, Tom would be delighted to speak with any of your listeners. Um, uh, you, you will uh, attach to this podcast our client alert um, at the conclusion of our client alert. Um, all of our contacts here in London and also our colleagues in the US are included. Um, so please don't hesitate to reach out in the first instance to Steve or me um, or our colleagues in the US um, who can uh, then refer you to us as well if your questions are directly pertinent to uh, this particular uh, discussion and would be happy to have that conversation with you. Gentlemen, I wanted to thank you uh, very much for not only writing the client alert, but taking the time to visit with me today. This has been a a fascinating exploration. I think there's really some solid information in this judgment and a lot for uh, people like yourself, uh, outside counsel, corporations, and compliance officers to consider in the Serco Deferred Prosecution Agreement. Thank you, Tom, for having us. Thank you very much. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. I hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. And you also check out the latest offering of the Compliance Podcast Network, which is Accountability at the Heart of Compliance, a podcast which I am co-hosting with Sam Silverstein. Sam's got some great ideas on accountability, and they're directly applicable to the compliance space. So check it out. Accountability at the heart of compliance. Both Accountability at the Heart of Compliance and the FCPA Compliance Report are produced by the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA Compliance Report is a proud part of the C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.